We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Have you heard of? Uh, let me. When I have you heard of Taylor Swift? And and you know, there's a lot of buzz going around because of, uh, of course, Taylor Swift and her love affair with uh, a player on the uh, on the Kansas City Chiefs. And 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 she's been at many games. And you know, anytime there's a touchdown or you know, they they pan up to the box and they. They show you the reaction. And this has been mixed, uh, or met with mixed reactions. Some people like it. It's certainly draw, drawing more females uh, to the audience, which everybody likes, including the NFL and their advertisers. But some uh, diehards, it's really ticked off. And I can understand why, because sometimes there's more attention paid to the Taylor Swift factor than there is to Kansas City or, in this case, uh, the Super Bowl. So I wanted to read you this note. And this note is from Gabe Macaluso. And at one time, Gabe was the CEO of uh, Cops Coliseum when it was Cops Coliseum. So uh, obviously he would get the hobnob with a lot of people that came in and out. Blah, 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 blah. So he sent me this story considering all of the negative press that's around uh, Taylor Swift these days. He said, hey, Scott, hope all is well. I have a beautiful story uh, that I'd like to share with you of Taylor Swift and a little girl at McMaster Sick Kids who was dying of cancer a number of years ago when I was the CEO of Cops Coliseum. I received a call from Sick Kids several years ago from a nurse who was referred to me in hopes of obtaining a few tickets at a concert in Orlando for a six-year-old who was dying of cancer and had a couple of weeks of life left. Uh, to make a, uh, the Make a Wish, uh, the Make a Wish Foundation granted her and her family and hospital caregivers a trip to Orlando, Florida, to Disney. I managed to contact. Taylor Swift's manager and told her about the little girl who was who worshipped Taylor Swift and her wish to go to a concert. About an hour later, I received a call from Taylor Swift's mother. She said that Taylor would make her wish come true. They picked the little girl up and her siblings, dad, mom, and the McMaster medical team of about eight in total. By limousine, gave them front row seats and a meet and greet backstage with Taylor Swift. Taylor dedicated a song to her during the concert and gave her merchandise and took precious photos. Sadly, the little girl passed away a week later. Taylor Swift and her mother are genuine, caring people, unlike some of the other prima donnas in the entertainment world. I thought I'd share this story with you, since Taylor Swift is top of mind these days in a negative way. So there you go. And that's from Gabe Macaluso, who uh, used to uh, be the CEO at COPS. So um, it, it's interesting. And, and, you know, I think this would be a different story if it was a big team, like an L.A. team or a New York team. But this is Kansas City. And this is a big deal for them. And, 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 it, it, and it really seems that all of this fits in with Kansas City. Unlike, for example, uh, watching... Um, I don't know, a basketball game and all the stars are sitting around courtside in L.A. or even going to a, an F1 race that have now come to the United States and watching the stars snub all of the reporters as they walk up and down the grid. Um, you know, in, in a time that we live, um, you know, here's at least a positive light and some happiness or some things that hopefully bring some happiness to fans and those that care uh, uh, you know, about both.
the singer and the football game or the sport itself. So uh, an interesting note, and we thank Gabe for uh, sending that uh, along. And again, you know, in a world where everybody seems to be fighting with each other and angry from either extremes, anything that pulls us together, that can't be a bad thing. Okay, so we talked yesterday. By the way, it's like five degrees in Hamilton. Isn't that amazing? Uh, and happy February 1st to everybody. So um, you got to love Niagara Falls. I love Niagara Falls uh, for its beauty, for its ingenuity, for its uh, its industry, how uh, the whole power station thing. And it's just a wacky place. You got to admit, it is just a jewel for so many different reasons and, and just the weird and wacky that go on at Niagara Falls over the course of its great history. So uh, the other day we're talking to uh, to uh, York University uh, astronomer and and they're telling us about the solar eclipse, which is coming April 8th. And this was all a discussion about, um, really, because there, there's some school boards that are that, that are, you know, keeping kids inside or canceling PA days or whatever. So kids just don't stare at the sun because this all starts at about two o'clock in the afternoon. And it happens like once in a lifetime, once every hundred years or so, where the moon is in front of the sun and for a brief, a brief period and where Niagara Falls is and across Southern Ontario, that's pretty much the path that this is going to take. So uh, for us in this area on April 8th, for a brief period of time, and you know, probably about a minute and a half, a minute fifty, they say, the moon will be in front of the sun, and there will be it will be dark. Other than you know, it'll look like dusk. Other than the ring around uh, the moon of the sun, and of course, you can't stare at this. Please don't stare at it. Don't stare at it. Don't stare. It will it will blind you anytime staying staring at the sun. So that's sort of how the conversation started. Was this great event that was happening, and we we're in the path of it, and 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 we would get to experience this. Blah 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 blah. So then all of a sudden, uh, Niagara Falls comes into the picture. Because, of course, it's along the same trajectory of this solar eclipse. And then you don't realize, because, well, why wouldn't you? That people from all around come to Niagara Falls to witness such events. Which, you know, number one, it's because it's in the line of fire. It's it's a great place to see it. But so is Hamilton, right? Uh, but considering the natural wonders, what this is, for some reason, people are showing up to Niagara Falls or will be on April 8th because this is being touted as one of the best places to see it. So Niagara Falls <laughs> being what they are, yeah. golden opportunity because that's what Niagara Falls is. It's, 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 uh, it's an ongoing sideshow. And I mean that in the most respectable way. And, and, and if you haven't been down that area, whether it's Niagara on the Lake or Niagara Falls in the last little while, you got to check it out because it's still as beautiful as it always is. And it's only getting better. So, uh, so anyway, when these sorts of events and, and, and things happen, for some reason, people congregate at places like Niagara Falls and, uh, you know, whether 
because perhaps it's considered one of the wonders of the world. I know it's not one of the official, whatever. Um, but whether it's people going over the falls in barrels, whether it's people walking across the falls, uh, whether it's the, 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 the new attraction with the power station down there that I was telling you about, uh, probably last year, uh, my wife and I got to uh, go and, and visit that. We went down and visited it. And uh, it's just a, a, a tremendous, tremendous facility, the old power station, and they've converted it into a tourist thing. And you could actually take an elevator down to one of the one of the giant tunnels and, and you can now walk right out like in, you can swim to the mate of the mist, it feels. So it's amazing what this city has become and how they have uh, really turned themselves, <laughs> continue to turn themselves into an incredible tourist attraction. And it's one of these reasons, one of the reasons is what they're doing. So we've got the mayor on uh, on the line now. He's uh, He's been busy, uh, I'm sure, doing mayoral things. But let's bring in Jim Diodati, mayor of Niagara Falls. He's here now. Jim, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing really well. And thanks for uh, having me on your show, Scott. So April 8th, the solar eclipse, what does this mean for Niagara Falls? Well, that's a great question. This is a big, big deal. The last one that happened was almost 100 years ago, and the next one isn't going to be for more than 100 years. So this will be the only time in our lifetime that we'll be able to to experience this here, and it's a full solar eclipse, not a partial, and it'll be extended longer than other areas. National Geographic just called us one of the top spots on the planet to view it this year. And I can tell you on the U.S. side, NASA will be here. They're going to have some NASA astronauts. We're going to have some space agency people here. The anticipation and what we're told based on other eclipse events that have happened is expect uh, up to eight to nine times the amount of people that you've ever had at your biggest event. So we had to go back 11 years to Nick Walenda. In that event, we had over 100,000 people here at one time. So you do do the math, that's a lot of people at one time in the city. And obviously it's because, you know, Niagara Falls right in the path of where all this is happening, of course. It's It's an optimal viewing spot. But for some reason, why does this stuff fit with Niagara Falls? Well, I think it's a combination of things. First of all, it's one of the great natural wonders of the planet. Second of all, this is one of the great natural wonders of space. And these two natural things coming together at the number one leisure destination in the country, I think it's going to be magical. And, you know, the way things have been lately, I mean, the world's Hmm. been in flux, you know, with what happened with COVID. And there's a lot of things happen around the world. And everybody gets, I don't know, it kind of wakes them up a little bit to the idea that it's a great big universe. And this is happening in our backyard. It won't ever happen again. And I think people get the feeling that they don't want to miss it. They want to be a part of it. And and if that's the case, we're inviting everyone to come here. And we're looking at it from a couple angles. Number one, it's going to be a massive tourist event. Number two, it's going to be a a safety event for our emergency services to make sure that people aren't looking directly into the sun and they can safely take it in. And I can tell you, I'm working with Niagara Falls Tourism, the Niagara Parks Commission, our hotel association to put on an event. So the entertainment ideas that we're putting together right now will make it extra special for anyone that makes the trip down here. What can you tell us about the, what's going to happen, the events itself? Any sneak preview there? Well, um, yes, you can, I can give you a little bits and pieces. One thing, 
we will, we've been in touch with Guinness. Um, we'll be attempting a Guinness world record and, um, we'll be announcing what that is for people that want to play ball with us and participate and help us break a world record. Uh, we're going to have entertainment. We're going to have a massive stage set up. Um, we're going to have people here from all over the place, all over the world coming in. And I know they're getting calls in the campgrounds, the parks, the, hmm. the tourist areas, the Niagara parks, the hotels. There's a great deal of interest for people that they just want to be here and take it in and do it together collectively with everyone else. What a perfect match, Jim, uh, and good for you guys for taking advantage of it the way I know you will. Uh, Mayor of Niagara Falls, Jim Diodati, is with us. Niagara Falls, the place to be April 8th for a solar eclipse once in a lifetime and a half experience. Jim, thanks for the time. Good luck. Scott, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. I just want to know how everybody's doing. How are you doing? How are you feeling today? It's Scott, and I'm just checking in. That's all Elmo said on a tweet or an X or a post on X, which was once Twitter. And it's just Elmo, at Elmo, follow. Elmo is just checking in. How's everybody doing? Well, the response was amazing. Uh, and the story continues to gather steam and continues to generate conversation, which at the end of the day, I guess that's the positive thing out of all of this and some of the response. Stephen says the world is burning around us, Elmo, and has a bizarre uh, image. Uh, another one, wife left me. Daughters don't respect me. My job's a joke. Any more questions, Elmo? Jesus, man. So, you know, that's just poor Elmo trying to um, reach out. Why are we looking at it this way? Why has this gained so much response? Steve Jordans is with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, here now. Steve, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. You as well, Scott. Great to be with you. It'll, I'm interested to know how you view all of this, Steve. What, did you, what were your thoughts when you saw this? It's, it's kind of a fascinating little time capsule of, of kind mm. of where we are um, in, in the sense of, you know, so many people undergoing so much stress and so many people who want to be heard and want the opportunity to just kind of share. And, and that's what Elmo did, you know, quite innocently. But with those words checking in on you, you know, when we talk to somebody and say we're checking in on you, that's a little bit more than just saying, hey, how are you? If it was, hey, how are you? They'd probably say, I'm fine. Thanks. But when you say checking in on you, it suggests you care. Um, and that's what Elmo did. He suggested that he cared. And, and when somebody heard that or when people heard that, that gave them the opportunity to say, you know what, I'm really not okay. And, and so many people just, you know, rose to that and, and off it went. And they are truly exceptional responses. Um, you said something, Steve, people just want to be heard. So really, this is less about, well, it's not, not to diminish what the question was, because he did ask, how are you doing? He, 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 he didn't just say hi and, and that sort of thing. He, he, he asked the perfect question. But that being said, um, what does it say that so many people wanted to be heard and took yeah. this little, this little opportunity to do that? I mean, I think there's a huge lesson in that for all of us um, in the sense that, yes, we are all dealing with a lot of challenges, but the antidote to that is what we call social connection 
if somebody is there and cares, and if we get the sense that someone's there and care, and they show us they care by listening, listening is such a powerful thing to do. If we attend to our conversations in the day, we realize it's it's mostly one person saying, here's what I think about something. And the other person saying, yeah, well, here's what I think. Well, here's what I think. It's rare <laughs> that we take the time when somebody suggests something to just be about them. And to listen to them and to ask them more questions. When you do that, it shows that person you really care. And that's the antidote to the stress they're feeling. That actually allows them to feel better. Um, and so that's, you know, by opening up that door and saying, hey, I care. Um, we saw that that need almost come out in so many people to just share what they're going through at that time. Does that say that a lot of people, most people out there, uh, more than we think, just want to be asked how they are. They just want to know someone reacts, but there again is that human connection. Yeah. And, and in fact, if you, if you follow the story of this Elmo post, I think it was really interesting and, and almost predictable, but what Sesame street did in the sense that all of their other characters, you know, quickly came, yeah. even though Elmo didn't express any, any dissatisfaction with life, they kind of modeled what we would hope would happen to everybody that replied to Elmo, which was other people in Elmo's social circle from big bird yeah. to cookie monster, you know, kind of reaching out and saying, Hey, Elmo, if you ever need me, I'm there. Um, and that is again, an, an example of exactly, I think what everybody who responded to Elmo wished they had in their life. You know, somebody that reached out and said, wow, I know things have been tough for you and, and I'm here. And if you need me, you know, let's chat. That is such a powerful thing to do for the people we care about when we know they're going through a tough time. Um, and, and if we could learn that, and I always talk about, you know, there's this thing called active listening and you can go online and, and look mm. and learn all about active listening. If you learn how to do that, you can really help so many of your friends and you can strengthen your connection with those people. And then they will be there for you when you need them. Uh, and that's the real power that comes from that. Uh, my boss used to say that all the time, but he'd frame it differently. But I totally understand what you're saying, Steve. <laughs> uh, obviously, Sesame Street behind this, we know their history and, and education and such and, and the great work that they do. I'm thinking, and, and you know, because this is how my head works, um, that this was, you know, just a, another great social media uh, experiment post. And the full intention was to have Elmo say, hey, how you doing? And then the other characters would slowly respond. And that was, that's the bit, that's the, that's the program. And then hopefully others would respond, but it seems people responded before the characters even had a chance to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, just give me the opportunity. So I, I work a lot with something called the Genwell project, which is all about helping people understand the importance of social connection and, and to actually form those social connections. And one of the thing people Mbachi, the head of that organization says is that it's very important to have permission. Uh, we think like, Hey, do you ever wear goofy outfits? Well, probably not usually, but you do on Halloween. Right, because Halloween gives you the permission mm. to do that, yeah. to go ahead and do that. And so, what Elmo did is he gave people the permission to do what they wanted to do, which was share the stresses in their lives. Uh, and and that's a very powerful. And that's what we see as soon as people had that permission, you know, they just jumped at it. And and again, that's the kind of you know that's the difference between seeing someone you care about and saying, "Hey, how are you?" versus um, you know, really want to check in. It's been tough. How are you feeling? Uh, if you, if you have that little extra, like I care, and that's, and that's the, that's the part you're trying to communicate. 
then you're giving permission and um, and be ready <laughs> because as Elmo showed, sometimes when you give permission, mm. you know, the person will kind of take that opportunity. Uh, and so that's where the act of listening comes in because that makes you ready to then follow up and continue on if, if that does happen. So Steve, how do you sell relationships and people? And I get completely what you mean. You know, you've got to interact. You've got to get out even post pandemic and, and such. How do you sell that when most people, I shouldn't say this, when some people are angry and, and I don't want to talk to him because I, I, I don't want to listen to what he has to say. Because we're so yeah. confrontational. How, how do you say, you know what, just because you're meeting with somebody doesn't mean you have to get in a fight with them. <laughs> yeah, no, a- absolutely. And and I've been a big fan and other things of, of talking about common ground. But, you know, sometimes it's even so so there's those those people. But even we talk about things like going to the grocery store and having a quick little chat with the cashier, saying something nice to them yeah. and, and having a quick little interaction. Even those little interactions feed us and make us feel good. Um, with those people that we disagree with, uh, you know, that I would very quickly say if, if someone's just disagreeing with you and insisting on staying on that topic, you're better to walk away. Um, mm. it's, it's just not something you can, you can recover. But if you have somebody that's at least a little, um, reasonable, <laughs> then you can agree to disagree. You can say, let's talk about the stuff we agree on. Let's find that common ground and let's intentionally, you know, admit to each other. There are topics we don't agree on. And if we step there, let's just step off of there again. Um, and let's, you know, try to stay on this common ground because that's where we can connect and bond and be friends. Uh, it's easy to say, it's harder to do. Uh, and in the, in the situations where I do that and I have, I've got a couple of uh, relationships that are exactly those kind of relationships. And we have had to intentionally almost have a deal. I had to, we had to talk about <laughs> it ahead of time and say, we know we disagree on this topic. And we even call each other out. One of my friends, you know, if one of us steps off common ground, we will say yeah. back to common ground. Uh, and, and that'll just pull that person right back. So for if you really care about someone and, and you have that sort of divisive situation happening, that's the approach I would suggest to take with that person. Uh, words of wisdom from Professor Steve Jordan, Psychology, University of Toronto, the Elmo Factor, social media is just simply asking how we're doing. The rest uh, is up to you. Steve, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you very much. Some racing news. Lewis Hamilton leaving Mercedes F1. What? And as well, uh, Andretti's out of F1. What? Uh, and, and, oh, 24 hours of Daytona uh, last weekend. And this guy was there. Todd Lewis, host of Rec Culture TV, announcer, pit announcer with the NASCAR Pity Series, featured in Scouting the Reps and Racing It Out podcast. He is with us now. Todd, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, and it was the uh, 235830 of uh, Daytona, not the Rolex 24 this year. They came up a little short. So they put what the happened? flag out early. <laughs> really? Does, did, did that matter? How big of a factor <laughs> no, was that? No, it didn't that? matter. They, they didn't matter. They didn't change the results. <laughs> what does that do for Rolex, though? Let's be serious there. Isn't that the most? <laughs> I'm sure they've, had, thing- they've been very pleased with all the extra social media commentary they've been getting. So I watched a little bit of this and, uh, and, you know, I keep hearing that they had record crowds down there. You were there, correct? It, I was, it was tremendous. It was a, it was a, a swarm out on the grid before the race and, uh, the, the Michelin pilot series race on Friday it was, it was fantastic. Tremendous event. If you've never been, it is a, a tremendous event to attend. How do you explain the, how do you explain the 24 hours of Daytona now having a record setting year? 
the popularity of sports cars has been on the rise significantly the last few years. They have enormous manufacturer support, which is the, the yeah. big thing. There are so many race fans that still have their favorite manufacturer with whether it be whether domestic or, or around the world. And they have amazing manufacturer support. And that's, I think, part of the key. And the, the rules that they've put in place, the, the hybrids that they're introducing in the GTP class of, of sports cars, it's, mm. uh, it's really been a, a nice upward trajectory. And I think, Todd, the addition of hybrid models, uh, it's keeping this sport relevant. Uh, it is. It's uh, that's the way the manufacturers want to go. That's why they're investing such enormous amounts of money into sports car racing and and other forms of motorsports. It's it's the research in terms of what they want out on the mm-hmm. on the streets that that motorsports benefits from. So let's talk about Lewis Hamilton leaving Mercedes. Uh, anyone who's a fan of F1 knows this guy had seven championships and then I think was robbed of an eight. Uh, and it sort of had a lackluster stay at Mercedes since then. And, uh, and George Hamilton, I believe his teammate, um, you know, up and coming. And now we're hearing he's leaving. What can you tell us about this story? Uh, it is amazing that, uh, you, it's still a stinking in, I think that Lewis Hamilton is leaving Mercedes, uh, a team that he and brand that he has been associated with since he was a teenager. He's been there for a decade now, but yes, it became official when both teams have issued statements that Lewis will leave at the end of 2024. And Ferrari has said he will join on a multi-year contract beginning mm-hmm. in 2025. Can't imagine it's more than a couple of years because he'll have crossed the, the 40 threshold at that point in terms of age, but yes, he is leaving. So you have to think that Lewis over the last couple of years and in discussions this year is thinking, maybe it is my best opportunity to get an eighth championship and become the only one to score eight championship victories in Formula One. Michael Schumacher, of course, has seven as well, but maybe Mm -hmm. that's how he sees his best opportunity. Of course, there's the great tradition of Ferrari as well. I mean, you think Formula One, you think of Ferrari and the the prancing Mm -hmm. horse, and maybe that's part of what went into it. Uh, It didn't seem real when the words started to filter out earlier this morning, but with the official announcements, it's happening. But I, I don't know how comfortable a season it's going to be either in Mercedes or in the Ferrari garages, but yes, it is actually happening now. Can Ferrari beat Red Bull and Mercedes? I, I don't know that they can yet. And yeah. maybe it's not this year. Maybe Lewis sees something and because you've got to imagine he's had pretty extensive yeah. discussions before making this leap that he sees that this is his best opportunity in the years ahead. There's going to be regulation changes that come into effect in 2026, and it is a multi-year deal. It's not just for 2025. Maybe he sees it as his best opportunity. Wow, big news. Now, Andretti's an F1. What happened here? Yeah, it's quite a way to move that off the uh, front burner of the of the of the public topic, isn't it? But yeah. yes, the uh, Formula One has said that no, we're not, uh, we don't want to accept uh, Andretti as it is. So Andretti has has brought in Cadillac as a, as a manufacturer, but they they won't be producing an engine themselves for a number of years. And Formula One cited that as one of the big reasons. The other is if they were to come in in 2025, as they were suggesting. Again, I mentioned the regulations that are going to change in 2026. Andretti would essentially be building two cars at once and trying to 
move into that elite level of motorsport in 2025 with one car to try to get in, to try to be in any way, shape or form competitive. They've already got people working on this and and have for some time to try to prepare for an entry into Formula One. To take that and get into Formula One in 25, then have to chuck it all aside and then do something Mm. new again in 2026 they decided that this was too much. Yes, they did have a, an agreement that might get them in with, with a Renault engine that would be badged as a Cadillac, but Cadillac has said, we want to be with Ferrari. They would manufacture their own, their own engine in 2028. So F1 has essentially tried to kick it down the road, say, we'll bring you in and we'll look at this again as an option for 2028. And the entry fee is going to be significantly higher than the $200 million it would have cost to get Hmm. in in 2025. I think that's the other part of it. And everyone is pearl clutching and upset because they didn't see that Andretti, the Formula One folks didn't see that Andretti would bring more to the F1 brand than F1 would bring to Andretti. And that's the, the part that they're hanging on. But there are reasons for it. You might not like them, but there are reasons for it. All right, and it's not. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen uh, one day. Todd Lewis with us, host of Rec Culture TV, uh, Pinty's NASCAR Series pit announcer, and scouting the refs and racing it out podcast. Todd, exciting time! Thanks for taking the time to join us. Good luck. Anytime, Scott. Talk to you soon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We all know and love the Westdale Theater. And it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about its uh, its rejuvenation and uh, what it has or what it has become now. Uh, and surprisingly, that was like five years ago. And the Westdale Theater preparing for the fifth anniversary of its reopening with a celebratory gala fundraiser filled with music, entertainment, special guests, and it's happening February fourteenth, Valentine's Day. Alicia Main is with us, executive director of the Westdale, and here now, Alicia. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. So first, give us the details and logistics of this event, uh, times, dates, how we get tickets, that sort of stuff. Yeah, so uh, February 14th, tickets at thewestdale.ca. So the night's going to kick off at 7 p.m. with the Hamilton All-Star Jazz Band performing to welcome you as you walk in. Uh, We've got a set of classic soul songs from the super talented Susie McNeil and Gary Beals. Uh, and then uh, Scott Falconbridge, a fantastic comedian, is going to be doing a stand-up set. It's all hosted by uh, Lohipa Pogason-Acker, who's a great community champion. Uh, and we also have Gail Obadiah, who's a, a local uh, Mohawk singer-songwriter, uh, welcoming the audience with a set of res jazz. So it's quite a variety show. It's really showcasing the best of what the Westdale does. So uh, to those that may not be, have not uh, been into the new and improved uh, 2024 edition of the Westdale, describe it. How, what is it now? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the theater has been around since 1935. Um, So it was reopened in 2019 after extensive renovations, um, but really maintained the beautiful uh, original sort of art deco look of the theater. Um, It's really impressive when you walk in to see this just kind of historic hidden gem in the Westdale village that from the outside, you can't really tell what's what's Mm. in this, uh, when this, in this little uh, section of shops, but you walk through the door and there's this big 340 feet theater kind of hidden away there. So if anyone hasn't seen it before or or hasn't been in the last five years, it's known as 
certainly a, a transformation, you know, in terms of, you know, it was a complete rehaul of the audiovisual equipment, uh, all brand new seats, uh, brand new upgraded concessions. So it's really kind of taking the um, traditional look of the classic 1930s theater and bringing it up to speed with the uh, new kind of techno- technology and comforts of, uh, you know, of, of modern times. I remember when all of this was going down, uh, going on way back when, and you know there sort of was a vision of what the Westdale would then become. As you look back five years ago, it, it, you know, with with all the blood, sweat, and tears put into this, and what it is, in what it is now, is it much different than you anticipated? Has it spawned? Is it is it different than what you know the original plan was or template? Right. Well, it was always designed to be a community arts hub. Uh, and, you know, obviously it was, there was a strong focus on cinema, but we also wanted it to be a place where communities could host their events. Um, so we have a lot of community partners uh, that um, work with us. But obviously the pandemic was, <laughs> was quite yeah. impactful on our business. We were closed 400 days uh, during the pandemic between you know, 2020, 2021 and severely restricted when we were open. Um, so that's just prompted us to adapt further with really diversifying our programming and, and uh, you know, in addition to movies, offering a lot more live music, uh, comedy, uh, other live performance, um, and really looking to where we can host uh, community events, too. So we had the Hamilton Fr- Fringe Festival um, partnering with us. Uh, last year, and they'll be back again this year, um, and and really thinking of other kind of performance art kind of uses of the space. So um, yeah, it's really trying to diversify away from kind of one 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 industry or one art form, and really think of uh, unique ways that we can all use this beautiful theater. And it's really cool the way the community has rallied around this place. So uh, people will come just to the theater, not necessarily if uh, the actor or the event that's going on is their fancy, but just because it's there. Right. Yeah, it is a you know non-profitable charitable organization. So we do heavily rely on the community support. Uh, so, you know, this we have a fundraiser every year. Uh, so it's always on Valentine's Day, February 14th, which is the anniversary of the, uh, the day it reopened on February 14th, mm. uh, 2019. And all funds raised will help support our community programming. And we do also have a, a membership base as well. So uh, people can pay a membership fee. There's different levels. Um, they get different perks. And that's a way to support the theater ongoing uh, throughout the year. Um, and from that, we have built a great community of uh, people that come out. We have special members-only screenings. Uh, and, you know, it really helps to um, kind of foster that community within within the theater and with, within the Westdale Village. Where do you take it from here, Alicia? <laughs> where are we going this year you mean no like what i mean how do you grow this how do you you yeah. know again you you talked about diversifying especially yeah. over the pandemic and such where do you see the future going more expansion of the same what, what do you see yeah um i certainly would like to still uh, to see um more original uh live music at the theater um, yeah i mean you know it is uh it, the music industry has taken a big hit during the pandemic as well so i think mm-hmm. uh, you know, artists are trying to regroup and, and make touring work again for them and, you know, get audiences used to coming in to seeing live shows. So uh, that'll be a big focus for us this year is growing out. And also comedy, um, you know, we want to do, we're bringing back monthly comedy nights last Thursday of the month. So uh, it's a great room for comedy. These <laughs> are, um, you know, great listening room. Uh, artists really love performing there. Uh, and we have had many sold out uh, comedy events. So um, audiences really love it as well. 
West Hell Theater preparing for its fifth anniversary of its reopening happening on February 14th. Uh, music, entertainment, special guests. You can find out more at thewestdale.ca, thewestdale.ca. Ashley Main with us, uh, sorry, Alicia Main with us, executive director of the Westdale. Alicia, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. So I'm uh, watching the U.S. Senate hearings on social media and child exploitation because it's what I do. And, uh, well, actually, I was watching the news and I see a clip of this. And, uh, you know, I'm watching uh, a bunch of southern U.S. senators, which... You know, I shouldn't assume anything, but I start kind of rolling my eyes. And they're talking to Mark Zuckerberg, of course, of Meta and Facebook fame and such. And and when I tuned in, it was uh, Lindsey Graham, a uh, southern senator who was a uh, politician, rather, who's who's hammering away at Zuckerberg and, and saying that um, that uh, his site has blood on its hands and all kinds of stuff like this, just hammering away at him. And what I just thought was bizarre, he got him to stand up and turn around and face the audience who, I guess, family members had been involved in child exploitation and, and, and such. And he got Zuckerberg to apologize to them, which I just thought was the most bizarre scene. I, I, I just didn't expect this. So let's bring in Carmi Levy, tech, uh, Levy, technology analyst and journalist, and get his take on all of this. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. You know, the word bizarre, Scott, perfect way to describe it. I think that moment kind of encapsulated just how weird uh, this entire story has been, and quite frankly, just how off the wall Meta has always been, because really the company is a reflection of Mark Zuckerberg, and let's face it, not exactly the warmest and fuzziest human on planet Earth. How do you, uh, and we'll get to the objective of these hearings in a sec, but just even in that moment, is, is that of significance in any way? Has he done anything like that before? Does this have any sort of impact, do you think? Oh, I, I think it made for great political theater. The fact yeah. is Mark Zuckerberg didn't walk in there and decide, I'm going to apologize to the parents whose kids have been harmed and in some cases decided to end their lives by suicide because of what they encountered on these platforms. Uh, he had to be goaded into it. Senator Ho- Josh Hawley uh, forced him to force his hand, basically said, are you going to stand up and apologize to, to these families? So he had no choice. Uh, and even the apology was, I mean, let's call it what it was, insipid. There wasn't a whole lot there. You know, I'm sorry mm-hmm. for what you went through. What else is he going to say? Uh, this was peak Mark Zuckerberg. It's the way he's always been. Not exactly, uh, you know, the the kindest human being uh, uh, I've ever seen in tech. A typical Silicon Valley tech bro. Uh, and ultimately, it doesn't change anything. You can apologize until the cows come home. And we've taught our kids this. An apology means nothing unless it's followed up by real action. You have to change. You have to show that you're willing to change and then follow that up with uh, with a, a delta in your behavior. And so unless uh, you know, waking up this morning, Mark Zuckerberg has uh, some kind of epiphany and his behavior completely turns 180 degrees, uh, that apology ultimately means nothing. And it doesn't change anything for the families whose kids have essentially been through hell because of what they encountered on Instagram and Facebook. So what are the what is the objective of these hearings? It was really to uh, force uh, the leaders of the of, of these tech companies, um, so uh, Discord, Snap, TikTok, X, formerly Twitter, and Meta, 
to answer for themselves that there have been allegations over the years that these companies haven't done enough to rein in predatory behavior, abusive behaviors on their platforms that rather than dialing down the algorithms to protect younger users' mental health, they've dialed it up to drive engagement and advertising revenue. So it was, you know, they hauled them into Washington to force them to explain themselves and hopefully set the, set the stage, set the tone for, uh, for you know, possibly future laws, uh, future changes to the way they operate, things like that, the way big tech and big government cooperate on these things. Um, but you, you sort of had to get through your 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 argument session first, and and there had to be some political theater, and clearly there was lots of that going on. We've seen hearings like this before. Most of them have been very benign, very procedural, very boring, ultimately useless. They had to ask questions about their business. How do you make money? How do you operate? Uh, this was the most emotional and impactful hearing that we've ever had. Uh, and it's the, for the first time at the end of one of these hearings, it's the first time that I actually feel that maybe this could have been an inflection point. Maybe this could be the start of something that, you know, a lot of leaders, a lot of lawmakers kind of maybe had an epiphany and realized, well, we haven't done enough to to pull in the power of these big tech companies. Something's got to give. So Facebook has or Meta has failed or many social companies, social media companies, they have failed because they failed to uh, dial back these algorithms and 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 instead push them forward for monetary uh, rewards. So they have they have neglected in keeping those gates up. Exactly. If we remember back a few years, Frances Haugen, who was the famous Facebook whistleblower, she uh, was a former Facebook engineer on the way out the door. She got her hands on a whole lot of documentation. And in there, there was a bit of a smoking gun that showed that the company knew that uh, that on the Instagram platform that they had research that showed documented data uh, that uh, it was causing mental health harm to teenagers, particularly kids as young as 13. Um, and the recommendation in those documents was for the company to, to address this, change the algorithm so that certain kinds of content would not be suggested to these end users. And rather than dialing it down. They ended up dialing it up because dialing it up, of course, drives engagement, keeps people on the platform longer, allows them to deliver or or post more ads, which of course drives money. Um, and so profit over people. Uh, and that has been the, the mantra for this company that has been at the core of its culture. That explains why it's been so profitable and why it's grown so much uh, over the years. Uh, and, and I think the government uh, has essentially telegraphed to technology companies, Meta in particular, but the industry at large, that that sort of free-for-all that you've enjoyed for so many years where you've grown um, at the expense of your customers, of your end users, you have hurt them in the process willingly, knowingly that that is no longer acceptable and things are about to change. And, 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 and I think that's fair because all of these behaviors by Meta and others really have taken place in an environment where there aren't laws on the books that force them to behave differently. There are no consequences for these kinds of behaviors, even as kids end up deciding to end their lives because of this. We are seeing, though, people getting personally uh, uh, prosecuted for this, whether it's a situation in the Amanda Todd case, the Kenneth Law case. Um, so at, at what point does somebody who has been victimized turn around and start suing this company or these companies? Does that or will that have an impact? I'm hoping so. And I'd like 
for that to happen now. The, 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 it's interesting. I was on, uh, I was on air with, uh, with Amanda Todd's mom, Carol Todd, earlier yeah. today. And, um, you know, her sort of regret was how long it took to prosecute the individual in her daughter's case. Uh, he mm-hmm. was just convicted in 2022. So 10 years after yeah. uh, the crime was committed, he was finally held to account and sentenced to jail. And so uh, the, the the legal system has to move more quickly. Uh, law enforcement between countries have to get better at collaborating across borders. Uh, we, and we need better legal frameworks in place in Canada and elsewhere and better resourcing and more prioritization for this kind of thing. But, uh, and, and hopefully today or, or this week's events will move us in that direction. Um, but at the same time, in, individuals are being harmed right now. Uh, and it's happening immediately, and we can't afford to wait. And I would like to think that those who find themselves on the wrong side of the digital social media abuse curve have the courage to to seek solace in the courts and to launch their own lawsuits in advance uh, of these laws coming on stream, because we can't afford to wait. Carmen Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, commenting on the U.S. Senate hearings on social media and child exploitation and meta being uh, dragged across the coals, made to apologize. It was very bizarre. Carmi, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. It's a great being here, Scott. Thanks. Canadian manufacturers and exporters using data from Stats Canada say there are currently 2,300 unfilled manufacturing jobs in the Hamilton-Niagara area. In response to the shortage, it's released a report urging governments to double down on efforts to bring industry and educational institutions together to address skills gaps for more government support for employer-led training. To talk more about all of this, uh, Dennis Darby with us, President CEO of the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters, and here now. Dennis, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. All good, Scott. Lovely to talk to you. Uh, tell us what Canadian manufacturers and exporters are all about. Well, so we're the we're the trade association that represents the broad manufacturing sector right across Canada, and of course, Ontario is you know is the heart of manufacturing. About forty five percent of all manufacturers in, uh, comes out of Canada, out of Ontario, and so it really is the engine uh, for the country, and it's really important and. Hamilton's been at the hub of that forever, but it's uh, it, it, one of the things we wanted to point out with, as we're looking forward to the future, you know, one of the biggest issues is going to be people and continue to get having people with the right skills to work in the sector. Uh, you certainly don't have to look very far, Dennis, to see a help wanted sign. It, it's, it's just amazing. And obviously, uh, unemployment rates at uh, record lows. How historic is this? How significant is this? Because we've heard, you know, obviously, and the pandemic had a lot to do with this, I'm sure, but obviously the baby, uh, baby boomer population making its way through the system and such. But have you ever been in such a shortage situation before? No, we've looked back. I mean, it's been it's been an issue for manufacturers as we pull them every you know every quarter since about 2016. We started to see you know the beginning of shortages of significant amounts of, across Canada and across Ontario, really exacerbated during the pandemic because of course for that period of time we weren't bringing more people in, and it tends manufacturing tends to be one of those entry level places where people coming newcomers to Canada come historically. My own family you know came from you know from Europe and worked mm-hmm. in manufacturing in Hamilton. Well, well, that slowed right down. And what happened at the same time, and you alluded to it, is baby boomers are starting to retire. In fact, our best estimate, you know, over the next decade, about 18,000 people a year are going to be leaving the workforce. A lot of those people work in manufacturing, and they have those skills and develop those skills. So we really, there really is a, an urgency 
you know, to get on with this and get that next generation of workers in place. We remember, and you were, you know, you were saying that uh, that a large uh, number of these jobs uh, are, are perfectly suited for those that are coming in and and have limited skills and such, newcomers to Canada and such. But there also seems to be a massive focus now. And like, ten or twenty years ago, you didn't see this, where uh, students uh, and institutions are. Are, are are positioning the trades in a whole different light than they once did. Well, that, that's that's certainly the case. In fact, yeah, some of the jobs are entry level jobs, but even those jobs, you have to be able to just virtually any manufacturing plant. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to interface with the computer. You've got to be able to use a tablet. You've got to be able to you know to track data, and so yeah. that's true. But on top of that, yes, we need more people with skilled trades. You know, uh, when uh, you know in in past years we sort of moved people towards the liberal arts, nothing wrong with that, but we need more people, including you know, you know women, because Canada and Ontario totally underrepresented uh, in in manufacturing, and the jobs aren't those backbreaking jobs that you might remember from our parents yeah. or grandparents. These are high tech jobs, and we need to have more women uh, going through these technical training as well. If you're a young person, Dennis, and you're not sure you're at a crossroads, what you're going to do, uh, one way or the other, um, what, did, what, what tips, what advice would you give them if they're seriously looking in this direction? Uh, you, you, I mean, go to a, get to a college, uh, register for a trade. These are good, high-paying, long-term jobs. They're stable. They're challenging. Uh, you know, if you've got, you know, if 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 you don't mind, you know, be, you know, being where things are made. Uh, and it's where the action is. So I, I think it's a, if I could give that recommendation even to my own kids to start again, get it, get into the trades because the jobs will be there for a long time. And as we adopt all this new technology, whether it's for EVs or for new, new ways of making steel, we're going to need people with those technical skills. So, you know, the time is now and all those things we've called out to the government are exactly the thing to do. We need to start. We have to do it now. We can't, it re- we really can't wait. And what do we need to do? What can we do better when it comes to the institutions, educational institutions, government, getting people where they need to be? I think you've got to talk to kids when they're young and parents when the kids are young, even before high school, get them exposed. You know, we, we run a program called Women in Manufacturing where we try to get companies to bring students into, into their facilities to see what the jobs are like. We have to train that next generation. In the interim, we've got to upskill the people we've got, the people who are there who may not have those technical skills, let's, let's provide incentives, tax credits, whatever, to help incentivize that training. And, and, and third, uh, Ontario has, a, has what's called the Provincial Nominee Program in the immigration system. Make sure that the government and manufacturers are working together to say, these are the kind of skills we need. Because those are the people that are going to fill it short term while we develop, you know, we develop our bench. Dennis Darby with us, President and CEO of the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. Currently about 2,300 unfilled manufacturing jobs in the Hamilton, Niagara area. Dennis, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Canada now knows China tried to influence the last two elections, federal elections, according to top secret uh, briefing report obtained by Global News that said the government must do more to fight foreign interference. India is the only other country identified by name in the report, and almost three pages were devoted to India, although they were entirely redacted except for a single sentence. India engages in... uh, 
in in foreign interfere in foreign interference. To talk more about all of this, Duff Conacher is with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's here now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. So, Duff, why are we talking about this now? Because we remember these uh, this information started to trickle out a while ago with uh, uh, leaks from the Globe and Mail and, Glo- and Global and such. Why why is this a relevant story now? Well, relevant because we have the inquiry into inter- foreign interference going on um, that's just started on Monday. It's actually examining the issue this week of how the inquiry can look into foreign interference, figure out what happened in the past few years, what the prime minister and Trudeau cabinet knew, uh, when they knew it, what they did about it, um, while at the same time not disclosing information that other countries wouldn't want us to disclose that spy agencies uh, in Canada and other countries have gathered. So that whole issue of secrecy and disclosure is very much... uh, on the agenda this week, and it's not surprising to see CSIS finally release something um, because they're committing to more openness, even though they've been excessively secretive in the past. So I think they're trying to be a bit proactive and uh, and downplay concerns about their activities and excessive secrecy in the past. So uh, this is confirmation that there were there was interference in the last two elections then. Yes, further confirmation. I mean, the uh, yeah, there have been the media reports, of course. Those re- reports, uh, CSIS was going after the whistleblower who disclosed them, said that they violated national security and secrecy laws to disclose them. Now you see them proactively disclosing those uh, same type of reports. So it's kind of ironic um, that they're going after the whistleblower while committing to more transparency. But yeah, now that these reports are coming out as confirmed CSIS reports, as opposed to a whistleblower disclosing them, um, we just have more solid confirmation about this interference. We remember when this started way back when, and maybe this is has been watered down a bit since all of this started, but a lot of the questions were around the prime minister's office and what the prime minister knew and when the prime minister knew that. How does that interfere or affect a top secret source. I mean, it's not about the source of the information. It's not about uh, uh, the person involved. It's it's simply about when the leader knew about this and what they did about it, as you mentioned. So how does that how how can you not get an answer to that question and and not in 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 be worried about revealing top secret information? Can we not at least get that without threatening someone's life? Well, um, there is a huge secrecy loophole. Uh, first of all, yes, we can get the answer to that information. But there's also another huge secrecy loophole um, that is in our open government law, which really should be called the guide to keeping information secret that the public has the right to know, because <laughs> that's how politicians have designed it, full of loopholes that allow for excessive secrecy. And that secrecy loophole is that cabinet documents Advice to cabinet confidences cannot be disclosed for 20 years. And it's a big issue, and we're trying to find out with the commission, because Democracy Watch is intervening in the the commission. And we've been trying to find out whether the uh, Trudeau cabinet is disclosing all the internal communications about foreign interference over to the inquiry commissioner. And we still don't have an answer. We've asked uh, the um, commission lawyers 
repeatedly this week. And we're hoping to get an answer before tomorrow because this week's hearings have been about national security information and keeping it confidential, the parts of it that need to be to protect investigations uh, and spy operations. Um, but there has been little mention about this other category of information, internal cabinet communications. Are they going to be kept secret from the hmm. commission? Commissioner, and if so, how's the commissioner going to be able to tell what Trudeau knew when he knew it and what he did about it without those communication, internal communications? Good point. Um, do you think uh, the whole top secret thing is being used just as a distraction just to avoid getting to the truth? Because obviously when you involve uh, CSIS and, and spy agencies and, and things that are going on, I think the public is smart enough to understand there is a certain amount of, of, uh, of secrecy there. Uh, on the other hand, it seems to be overplayed here. Would you agree? Well, uh, thankfully, um, because Democracy Watch was uh, pointing out that of the people testifying this week, uh, nine out of 10 of them were from inside government and devoted to the culture of excessive secrecy. There's only one professor who's not really an expert in open government who was testifying. We were calling for the information commissioner to be called. She's the watchdog over the public's right to know. But thankfully, one of the uh, ex-head of national security, Dick Fadden, Richard Fadden, yeah. um, who's been commenting a lot over the years, mm-hmm. he came out yesterday and said, there is excessive secrecy. And there has been. And it has to change. And we're far more secretive in Canada than the U.S. is, uh, Britain is, Australia is. Uh, the government's reviewing the CSIS Act right now uh, to, uh, with the aim of making more information available. And so hopefully that's going to lead to systemic change uh, and also full disclosure of uh, some documents that have been kept secret, like the document that the uh, Glo- global reporter was able to get out from CSIS recently and, and that the news story is about today. Um, but yeah, there's an acknowledgement that there's excessive secrecy. And, and a big issue is, is the cabinet going to try and keep its internal communications secret? And if so, the one good thing about these situations is that if they do try and keep their internal communications secret, everyone will be quite justified in concluding that the Trudeau cabinet is trying to cover up wrongdoing. Mm. Because Duff why Conic- would you keep it secret if it shows yeah. that you did the right thing? Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. More proof China tried to influence the last two elections, last two federal elections. Duff, thanks for the time as always. Be well. Thank you. I'll keep you updated as we continue to intervene in this inquiry over the next uh, several months through to the end of the year. Thank you. Earlier today at City Hall, Hamilton's 17th annual honoree for Black History Month was announced. Dora Annie, founder of the School of Dreams, who passed away in 2019. Joining us now to discuss the School of Dreams and her work, uh, her mother's work back in her hometown uh, and the future moving forward. Barbara Annie is with us, president of the School of Dreams, daughter of the founder, Dora Annie, and here now. Barbara, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, I'm well. Thanks for having me. Must have been a pretty cool day today. Yeah, it definitely was. I've been asked that question a few times, and it's it's definitely that sort of cliche expression of mixed emotions. You know, super happy that she's being recognized. You know, also wishing she, of course, could be here herself to to mm. see those accolades come in. But it's it's been amazing. So tell us about this project and how your mother got involved in this. Yeah, so the project started this this year's our our 20th year that we've been around. 
Um, it started with a trip that my sister, my mother, and I uh, took to go to Ghana. Um, you know, that's where my family's from. Um, she hadn't been for many, many years, and my sister and I hadn't been um, in any period of time that we could remember as a sort of young adults. My sister, who was an educator by trade, um, my mom took us to the village where she grew up and was really excited to take us there. And she was like immediately disheartened because the small school that she uh, l- learned at when she was a child was in just such disrepair. Mm. So, you know, she got back to, to Hamilton and I always sort of describe it. She got a fire in her belly and and couldn't let it go. So she, you know, it originally started as a project called Dora's Dream. And uh, our, our local church, uh, McNabb Presbyterian, located in Hamilton, helped the first project get off the ground. And after that one project was done, she said to me, she said, Barb, I, I cannot let this go. There's so many schools that need our help. So, hmm. you know, that Dora's Dream project turned into a not-for-profit originally called Ghana Schools of Dreams, which then turned into a registered charity you know, less than a year before she passed away called Schools of Dreams. How much time would she devote to this? What What was her day like devoting to this? What would she have to do? How do you do this? <laughs> you know what? I didn't, uh, I laugh because, uh, you know, I've taken over as president and I, yeah. I now realized, I call this, so the one thing I should sort of start off by saying is that we are a 100% uh, volunteer run organization. Mm-hmm. I call, I have a day job. I work uh, as a uh, marketing media professional. I call Schools of Dreams my um, my my second full time job that I'm paid with in passion and dedication because it's mm. it's a lot of work. You know, we run a registered charity, which basically means we are running an, a business, a corporation, an organization, yeah. and you know, coordinating with folks in Ghana, working with the individual schools. Um, you know, connecting with donors here in in Hamilton and beyond, it's it's lots and lots of work, but it's definitely gratifying. I went um, last year around this time to go visit all of the different projects, um, the schools, and you know, just see, especially going to the very first school, seeing some kids who are now in university. It's it's amazing mm. to see that the. Um, you know, I always say we build we build the physical structures of schools, but really we are changing these kids' lives. Wow, that's incredibly rewarding. What was it like for you and your sister to go back to your mother's homeland? Uh, my mom was an immigrant; never got to do that with her. Always wanted to. What's that experience like? It was it was really amazing. Um, you know, I think seeing it through her eyes because she hadn't yeah. actually gone for over a decade. Um, you know, it was, uh, I I would say it was definitely a mix of emotions as well. It was, um, you know, startling because it's just such a shame what the government of Ghana does in terms of they will provide teachers, they will build a school, but they're just very poor at maintaining the schools and the Mm -hmm. schools become very unsafe. In fact, one of the projects that we had done, we completed in 2021 during the period of time between completion and, you know, getting rid of the the dilapidated portion of the school. um, Some kids were playing on the weekend and really sadly, the the school building that was 
thank goodness the kids were no longer actually learning in that building, but the, the building collapsed and two, oh, two man. of the kids passed away from oh, that, man. that, you know, situation. So it, again, we, you know, build the physical structures, but the, the sort of byproducts that come from, um, you know, the work that we do is, is just truly amazing. What is the biggest challenge running something like this, especially in a place like Ghana, where you're here, they're there? Uh, well, I would say we've got some really great people on the ground and we've developed, um, you know, technology, of course, has definitely helped us from mm. um, uh, addressing some of those challenges. I, I would say <laughs> I laugh because, um, you know, there's quite a big time difference. So sometimes just, you know, connecting is a big challenge. Um, you know, we really try to stay in touch with all of the different headmasters at all of uh, the schools. Um, and the one thing I notice is that the, the Ghanaian government, when it comes to faculty at the different schools, they like to change teachers a lot, which I think is a lot different than something, hap- uh, you know, the way it works here in Canada. They, they like to switch them to different mm. schools all the time. So it's hard to maintain um, relationships, especially when your mid project, which is what happened with our, our last project. Thankfully, a lot of these headmasters, actually all of them, headmasters, headmistresses, I should say, you know, it depends. Um, <laughs> they're all, they all get very invested. So uh, our last project that we just completed, the headmaster actually moved halfway through, but I've still been in contact with him. When I went to Ghana, he came to visit. I think he was feeling a bit of FOMO because he, you know, was ready to have a school that was going to be beautiful and completed, but he's still very thankful. Mm. Where did your mother see this going? I mean, obviously this started with her own school and then just continued from one to the other to the other. What's the future here? You know, I actually, um, when she was passing away and she was in the, the hospital and, um, you know, it, there was a period of time where she uh, was really struggling with, you know, the reality of her situation and, and, you know, that things were not going to, uh, you know, essentially go her way medically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had lots of conversations in those final days about, she was very, very worried about leaving the charity in particular. I think it was her, her uh, additional baby leaving it. Um, without sort of knowing what was going to happen and take care. And in those final days, every single board member came and physically said goodbye, let them know that they were going to, you know, continue to make this a priority. I did the same thing. And in her final days, I think she sort of came to the piece that she personally has taken it as far as she could. She was a hairdresser by trade. She was not, um, uh, you know, a corporate person. Like Mm -hmm. I said, I do this as a volunteer. I am, I do work in the corporate space. So I think I've been able to, um, you know, take it to places that she just hasn't been able to, uh, she couldn't have even imagined at the time. And, you know, I I look up at at the sky and and hope she's, you know, proud of the accomplishments that we've, we've done, but we've done things like moved into the digital space when it comes to fundraising. And we've developed an advisory council to, you know, get better at, how we as volunteers can work and just, you know, think more strategically. We have a strategic corporate plan. We've, you know, gone to visit all the different schools and we're connecting with our stakeholders in Ghana on and on and on. Lots of connections with 
different groups here in Hamilton. So, you know, I, I think that she had one vision for it, but it's, it's definitely expanded, I think, beyond her wildest mm. dreams. Schoolofdreams.com. If you want to find out more, schoolofdreams.com. Barbara, schools of dreams. I'm sorry, schoolsofdreams.com. Okay, thank you. Barbara Annie thank with, you the, so uh, with us, president of the School of Dreams, daughter of the founder, uh, founder, Dora Annie, who was honored at Hamilton's 17th annual honoree for Black History Month uh, earlier today. Barbara, thanks so much. What a fabulous story. Good luck moving forward. Thank you. Can I just make one little plug? We're uh, yeah. having our 20th anniversary event in May. For anybody who wants to stay in contact with us to get more details, just please email us at info at schoolsofdreams.com. That's schools with an S and dreams with an S. Thank you so much. Barbara, good luck with all of this. And uh, you should be very proud. Your mother would be, I'm sure, looking down on you. Congratulations. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word via email. And Leon, uh, today, more proof that... Uh, hang on. <laughs> More proof of interference in the last two federal elections in Canada. Why don't Canadians seem to care? Leon, keep writing up to pass. 